work on earth to build up your eternal kingdom. May they be effective witnesses to the truth of the gospel and make your church a living presence in the midst of the world. Increase the gifts you have given to them. May they continue to grow in holiness and imitation of your son. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a very beautiful prayer for the laity. And it touches upon the theology in that prayer is going to touches upon a lot of what we're going to be speaking about tonight. Um, after the last lesson, which dealt with the teaching office of the church uh, and her pastors, it's important that we now move to the largest of the church, where the church meets the world, and that's the role of the laity. And right now, well, I'll get to that in a minute, this is crucial because our course is a theology of the whole church, not just uh, the hierarchy. Okay, The call to holiness belongs not only to the Pope, uh, to bishops, priests, and so on, but to the entire lay faithful. So I think we ought to define our terms. So before we talk about the mission of the laity, we want to talk about the nature of the laity. And by the way, uh, I did revise the questions. I sent everyone an email. I'm sorry it came so late, but I decided to do this just today. So you have new questions, which frankly, I think I'm going to do this for the next, the last two lectures as well. Um, I think the questions I'm coming up with now are, are more focused and probably easier for you to answer. Uh, they're not as uh, broad. Um, and I also provided references to where you can find the answers, even though there are more of them. Okay. So let's look at the catechism entry 897, which is the first question on the revised list of questions for review. Who are the laity? Let's be specific. Diane, as an eminent member of the laity, would you read that for us, please? I'd be honored. The term laity is here understood to mean all the faithful except those in holy orders and those who belong to a religious state approved by the church. That is, the faithful who by baptism are incorporated into Christ and integrated into the people of God are made sharers in their particular way in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ, and have their own part to play in the mission of the whole Christian people in the church and in the world. Okay, so let's look at that more closely. The elements are listed there that define the laity. So a layperson is first and foremost a baptized Christian believer. So this would not include uh, non-Christians at this point. Okay, a baptized Christian believer. They are consecrated by the sacrament of baptism, that is, set apart for, uh, for God to fulfill a particular mission in the church that, that you are called to do. Uh, at this point, I'm addressing tonight every single one of you are members of the laity. Uh, those of you men who are studying to be deacons, once you are ordained to the diaconate, you will no longer be a member of the laity. You will become, you will enter the clerical state at that point because you will have 
received the first rank of holy orders. Okay, so it says that. Um, all the faithful accept those in holy orders, okay? Um, so by your baptismal consecration, you are incorporated into the body of the mystical body of Christ. That's, ex that's actually question number two. Huh? And you form the new people of God, okay? Um, you're not participating in any of the grades of holy orders or in the state of religious life that's characterized by the evangelical councils. We'll have more about that later but you will participate in your own particular way. And we're going to discuss tonight all those ways in which you exercise the priest, prophetic, and kingly mission of Christ in the world. Okay. Uh, you also share in the common priesthood, uh, the priesthood of the, all the faithful, what we call the universal priesthood. A priest is first and foremost a baptized believer like you, uh, before he can be ordained priest. If a man was ordained before he was baptized, uh, the ordination would not be valid. Okay? So the ordination has to take root in the baptismal consecration that is already there. Okay? The same is true for the sacrament of marriage. Uh, someone who was baptized can be married, but they cannot receive the sacrament of marriage. Okay? So if I married a, a, a Catholic with a non-Catholic, with a non-Christian, that would be a natural bond. It would not be a sacramental bond. Both parties have to be baptized. So baptism is the most basic sacrament that consecrates, that is to say, set-aparts for God, all Christian believers, and it gives them a unique uh, Christian mission in the church. So by baptism, then, you are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ, and you're made a member of the church, and Catechism Entry 871-1 basically says that, okay? Going to 871, Father? Yes, would you please? Yeah. Okay, the Christian faithful for those who inact as much as they have been incorporated in Christ through baptism have been constituted as the people of God. For this reason, since they have become sharers in, sharers in Christ's priestly, prophetic and royal office in their own manner, they are called to exercise the mission which God has entrusted to the church, to fulfill in the world in accord with the condition proper to each one. Okay, so as members of the people of God, um, the new, you're members of the new people of God, just as Israel was in the Old Testament. Uh, the people of God called to be God's own, right? Given a mission that uh, is destined to reach every corner of the earth. Okay. Now, so the next entry is a very beautiful one. It's a little long, but it's really quite beautiful. Uh, 782, uh, it also helps to answer one of your questions there. Uh, so, um, uh, Will, William, would you please, uh, William, you can't? The people of God is marked by characteristics that clearly distinguish it from all other religious, ethnic, political, or cultural groups found in history. It is the people of God. God is not the property of any one people, but he acquired a people for himself from those who previously were not a people. 
a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. One becomes a member of this people, not by a physical birth, but by being born anew, a birth of water and the spirit, that is by faith in Christ and baptism. This people has for its head, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, because the same anointing, the Holy Spirit flows from the head and into the body. This is the messianic people. The status of this people is that of the dignity and freedom of the sons of God in whose hearts the Holy Spirit dwells as in a temple. Its law is the new commandment to love as Christ loved us. This is the new law of the Holy Spirit. Its mission is to be salt of the earth and light of the world. This people is a most sure seed of unity, hope and salvation for the whole human race. Its destiny, finally, is the kingdom of God, which has been begun by God himself on earth and which must be further extended until it has been brought to perfection by him at the end of time. Okay, so in that uh, entry, you have the status, the law, the mission, and the destiny of the people of God, which is, again, one of your questions. So the layperson, in his or her own way, participates in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly or royal office uh, and mission of Jesus. It was his mission as priest, prophet, and king, and he shares that mission with his church in various ways. Okay? We saw how the hierarchy participate in that threefold mission, and now we're going to see how the laity participates in it. Um, because you also share in the common priesthood by virtue of your baptism, as I said before. And one way to look at it would be to say that um, or the ordained priest is a priest for the members of the body of Christ. Uh, and whereas the lay faithful are priests for the sake of the whole world. It's very important. So I'm a priest for you, for the lay faithful, but you are priests for the whole world. Uh, it's through the lay faithful that the world comes into contact with the church. That the church becomes what the scriptures describe as a leaven in the world. Okay? That's an image that the Lord uses in one of his parables from Matthew 13, 33. I think I put gave it to you, right? Uh, like the yeast that goes into the dough that makes the dough rise, that is what the lay members of the church are to be in the world, okay? Like the yeast that goes into the dough to do its work, the lady have a mission in the world to bring the message of Christ to the world to help build up the kingdom of God in this world. When you think about it, it's a very lofty vocation. I'm not sure how many Catholics understand it this way. So you share in this threefold mission in the midst of the world. I cannot emphasize that enough. We're going to go back to that again and again. This is not the domain of the priest or the religious or the monk. Although, although the priests and religious, they too exist in the world, right? But the mission of the priest is to shepherd, to nourish with God's word and the Eucharist, um, um, and help form disciples among the laity, to sanctify the laity. That's another way of putting it. The mission of the priest 
is to sanctify the laity. But the laity are the ones who are called to function in the secular world. That's your proper mission territory. Okay? And that's the key to your vocation, to sanctify what we call the temporal order and to order the affairs of the world to the gospel. So let's look at um, entry 783 now. Um, George, please. Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit, established as priest, prophet, and king. Lord God participates in these three offices of Christ, bears the responsibility for mission and service that flow from them. Okay, so now let's look at each one of these offices or missions. First, the, the priestly office, or sometimes it's simply called the sanctifying office, the sanctifying mission. Um, entry 784 tells us, um, uh, John Trembley. On entering the people, of God through faith and baptism, one receives a share in this people's unique priestly vocation. Christ the Lord, high priest taken from among them, has made this new people a kingdom of priests to God his Father, baptized by regeneration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, are consecrated to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Okay, so the priestly or sanctifying mission of the lady means imbuing the temporal order of this world with the spirit of the gospel. That's what that means. The primary place where lay persons fulfill their mission uh, in the church is in the world, in the world where the laity live and work every day. Okay? The lay apostolate does not primarily, can also this is important, the lay apostolate does not consist primarily in liturgical ministries. I think that's a misconception on the part of many in the church. Um, it could be one way in which lay people assist the church's mission, right? Uh, but it would be a mistake to think that doing something in the liturgy, such as being a lector or an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist, uh, or a leader of song or a member of the choir, would be to fulfill that. Because those are ministries that take place inside the church itself that's not your primary vocation though okay uh there was once i remember a horrific scene there used to be this priest who used to make the rounds giving parish missions uh until he was banned by bishop egan of my diocese uh when he was bishop of bridgeport he came to give a parish mission in my first parish and uh I was utterly shocked when he said to the people assembled, and I quote, he was trying to explain to them why we're not getting priestly vocations, why there's been kind of a um, uh, diminishment, you know, in, in the number of men that want to be priests. And uh, this was around 1980, oh, I don't know, 86, 87, something like that. He said, why is there a short of a priest? Because the Lord doesn't want them. He wants to get the lady out of the pews and into the sanctuary where they belong. 
and I was utterly appalled. It was one of the most appalling errors and misunderstandings of the lay vocation I have ever heard a priest say. Your place is not in the sanctuary. Your place is in the world where you live and function every day. Um, what he was really doing was he was encouraging the what we call the clericalization of the laity. You don't want to clericalize yourselves. You know? That's why I think it's even best sometimes um, uh, when you're exercising your ministry, let's say as an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist, not even to wear an alb. The alb is the proper vestment of the priest, deacon, and bishop. You know, it's a priestly garb, you know. I mean, you could wear it, I guess. You could make an argument to wear it because you share in the priestly office of Christ. But still, it smacks of a clericalization of the laity. Um, and I think pastors who understand that don't require that, you know. Um, that's not what Vatican II uh, envisioned when it encouraged lay participation in the liturgy. Naturally, of course, lay persons may share as, uh, may help the church as ministers, uh, as lay, as lectors, leaders of cantors, and so on. But that, again, that's not your primary role. That's not your primary vocation. The lady's role is not in the sanctuary. It's in the world to sanctify the temporal order. So what you do is the lady takes the graces that they receive from God through the liturgy, and that empowers you to sanctify the temporal order. So you go to Mass, you receive communion, you worship God, you leave there, and you bring what you've learned and what you've received into the temporal order to, to imbue the temporal order, the secular order, with the spirit of the gospel, and that's how you build up the kingdom of God. See? You, and often you do it by your work. Okay? So let's look now at uh, CCC 8898. Um, yeah. Beautiful, we have some beautiful readings here now about this. Uh, anyone? Douglas? I, or, no, Vinny, go ahead. By reason of their special vocation, it belongs to the laity to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will. It pertains to them in a special way so to illuminate and order all temporal things with which they are closely associated that these may always be affected and grow according to Christ and may be to the glory of the Creator and Redeemer. Okay, next one, Douglas. The initiative of lay Christians is necessary, especially when the matter involves discovering or inventing the means for permeating social, political, and economic realities with the demands of Christian doctrine and life. This initiative is a normal element of the life of the church. Lay believers are in the front line of the church life. For them, the church is the animating principle of human society. Therefore, they in particular ought to have an ever clearer consciousness not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church, that is to say, the community of the faithful on earth under the leadership of the Pope, the common head, and of the bishops in communion with him. They are the church. So, 
who's on the front line of the church's life? The laity. The laity. It doesn't say the pope. It doesn't say the bishops. It doesn't say the priests. The laity. And your mission permeates, what did it say? Social, political, and economic realities. Now, Pope St. John Paul II, in his uh, document, Christi Fidelis Laici, he wrote this beautiful, if you get a chance to read it, it's all about the lay vocation in the, in the world. Uh, the lay faithful of Christ on the vocation and mission of the lay faithful in the church and in the world. Number 14, um, before you have to leave us, doctor, would you please be so kind before the demands of the intensive care unit call you away? Would you be so kind to read that for us? I will. The lay faithful are sharers in the priestly mission for which Jesus offered himself on the cross and continues to be offered in the celebration of the Eucharist for the glory of God and the salvation of humanity. Incorporated in Jesus Christ, the baptized are united to him and to his sacrifice in the offering they make of themselves and their daily activities. Speaking of the lay faithful, the council says, for their work, prayers, and apostolic endeavors, their ordinary married and family life, their daily labor, their mental and physical relaxation, if carried out in the spirit, and even the hardships of life, if patiently borne all of these become spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. During the celebration of the Eucharist, these sacrifices are most lovingly offered to the Father along with the Lord's body. Thus, as worshipers whose every deed is holy, the lay faithful consecrate the word itself to God. All right, thank you. So, um, I think you are a perfect example of this, Doctor. You're on call in the intensive care unit um, for a 12-hour shift. Uh, you're the doctors and nurses, uh, respiratory therapists working with you, all the healthcare workers on the front lines, right, dealing with this crisis, putting their own lives at risk uh, to care for others. That's a classic example of what the role of the laity is in this particular in this particular uh, time, right? Uh, by uh, by sacrificing your time, their time, uh, by spending all those hours trying to care for others, even putting themselves at risk, these this becomes an all of that is a spiritual offering to God that is acceptable and pleasing to Him. My bishop yesterday uh, gave a beautiful homily about that for Palm Sunday, um, praising uh, our healthcare workers in particular, <laughs> doctors, nurses, uh, everyone working in hospitals and clinics, trying to. Um, protect people, save people from this terrible disease. Um, and he, and he, he tied it to the vocation of the laity, okay? which is exactly what we're, we're talking about here. Okay. So, um, teaching. Let's go to the teaching or the prophetic mission. Uh, the spreading the truth of Christian life. So, now we go uh, again uh, to the catechism. Uh, the holy people of God shares also in Christ's prophetic office. Above all, in the supernatural sense of faith that belongs to the whole people, lay and clergy, when it unfailingly adheres to this faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and when it deepens its understanding 
and becomes Christ's witness in the midst of this world. So there's 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 another that's how you exercise your prophetic office. Adhering to the faith delivered to the saints, living the faith every day. Then we have St. John Paul again uh, on in the same um, encyclical, Christi Fidelis Laici. Um, James, please. Through their participation in the prophetic mission of Christ, who proclaimed the kingdom of his Father by the testimony of his life and by the power of his word, the lay faithful are given the ability and responsibility to accept the gospel in faith and to proclaim it in word and deed without hesitating to courageously identify and denounce evil. United to Christ, the great prophet, and in the spirit made witness of the risen Christ, the lay faithful are made sharers in the appreciation of the church's supernatural faith that cannot err in matters of belief and sharers as well in the grace of the world. They are also calls to allow the newness and the power of the gospel to shine out every day in their family and social life, as well as to express patiently and courageously in the contradictions of the present age, their hope of future glory, even through the framework of their secular life. Now, a prophet is someone who proclaims God's word to the world, even without teaching or preaching in a conventional sort of way. That's the kind of prophetic office uh, in the church that laypersons are called to fulfill. Okay? Um, there's a maxim, a maxim that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. The person who lives the faith is preaching the gospel with the witness of his or her life. And that is the mission of every member of Christ's faithful. Um, that's that's the primary way, the primary way in which the Catholic faith comes into contact with every corner of the world. Okay, um, God's word to the world is many faceted too. Look at Saint Mother Teresa in India. Um, Mother was hindered by <coughs> Indian from proselytizing, so she couldn't she couldn't try to convert. Uh, Hindus and Muslims or whoever the religion was in India to the Catholic faith uh, that doesn't mean so it, doesn't, so it doesn't mean imposing your religion on everyone it means being guided by our own religious principles and our own faith when we do our everyday work in the world by doing that the lady spread the gospel Okay, uh, you can spread the gospel in many other ways not just by preaching and teaching Okay. You spread it when you live in such a way that people see that life and are attracted to it, are drawn to it, uh, because they see it as good. Uh, they see it, it's imbued with, with a spirit that's not of this world. You know? um, they see the generosity that comes from the spirit of God living in a person. Right? I said before, we're seeing it in our, in our healthcare workers. Right? They want to be a, a part of that. Have, 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 all of you must have seen some of this in, in your fellow parishioners from time to time, right? Uh, I certainly did when I was a, a parish priest and a pastor, right? So in that way, the lay members of the faithful participate in the prophetic mission of, of Christ, okay? Then the kingly or royal office, or sometimes called the governing or ruling office, 
ordering, this is about ordering human society according to divine truth, right? There can be no separation between faith and life. Faith and life cannot be divorced. Once there's, once there's a divorce between faith and life, something is out of order. So Catechism Entry 786 uh, tells us about that. Excuse me. Um, Colleen, please. Finally, the people of God shares in the royal office of Christ. He exercises his kingship by drawing all men to himself through his res death and resurrection. Christ, King and Lord of the universe, made himself the servant of all. For he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the Christian, to reign is to serve him, particularly when serving the poor and the suffering in whom the church recognizes the image of her poor and suffering founder. The people of God fulfills its royal dignity by a life in keeping with its vocation to serve with Christ. The sign of the cross makes kings of all those reborn in Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit consecrates them as priests so that apart from the particular service of our ministry, all spiritual and rational Christians are recognized as members of the royal race and sharers in Christ's priestly office. What indeed is, a royal, is as royal for a soul as to govern the body in obedience to God? And what is as priestly as to dedicate a pure conscience to the Lord and to offer the spotless offerings of devotion on the altar of the heart. Well, two, kind of, two things kind of emerge from that particular um, uh, entry. The service, the idea of service, uh, especially to the poor, the unfortunate, but also the wife and mother and housewife who serves her family. Um, mothers who are working hard to make ends meet, lost a husband perhaps, or have a disabled child, they're serving that child. That's that's the kingly office, right? Uh, or a father and uh, husband doing the same, working. Or again, the case of our healthcare workers right now, laying down their lives uh, as serving the sick, right? Nurses working in a hospital or a nursing home. Those are all different ways. That's So service is very important. The other one, uh, Pope John Paul II is going to touch upon a little more strongly. What is more royal for a soul as to govern the body in obedience to God? Now let's see what John Paul II has to say about that. Um, Joan, please. Because the lay faithful belong to Christ, Lord and King of the universe, they share in his kingly mission and are called by him to spread that kingdom in history. They exercise their kingship as Christians, above all in the spiritual combat, in which they seek to overcome in themselves the kingdom of sin, and then to make a gift of themselves so as to serve, in justice and charity, Jesus, who is himself present in all his brothers and sisters, above all in the very least, but in particular, the lay faithful are called to restore to creation 
all its original value. In ordering cre creation to the authentic well-being of humanity in an activity governed by the life of grace, they share in the exercise of the power with which the risen Christ draws all things to himself and subjects them along with himself to the Father, so that God might be everything to everyone. So when we say no to sin in our lives, when we use the graces God gives us uh, through the sacraments and through prayer um, to overcome in ourselves, it says, the kingdom of sin, we are exercising a certain self-mastery over our bodily passions and disordered appetites. That's another way of, of exercising the kingly office, right? What are you ruling? What are you governing? Yourself, right? You don't let yourself be led around by disorderly desires and passions that lead you away from God, right? So that's another way. It's a very lofty calling. I mean, listen to this to restore to creation all its original value. Imagine that. That's not my vocation. That's your vocation. Yeah? So, does God want the Christian people to rule the world? <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. But not by taking it over and forcing Christianity on everyone. Okay? But by imbuing the very structures of society even those of government with the values of the gospel. We don't take divine revelation and legislate it. Uh, we don't impose our religion on the rest of the world, but there are values that we have, what we believe about the dignity of the human person, the goodness that we're called to live, uh, living in accordance uh, with our human nature, the service of the poor, the defenseless, to defend the defenseless, um, especially the unborn, the elderly, the sick, the homeless, and so forth. So in imbuing the world with these values is what one does in governing, in ruling. But we're called to do it in a rather subtle uh, and beautiful way, uh, not by imposing, but by living accord according to our principles and beliefs, even in public life. When a lay Catholic has a role in public life, in legislation, as a member of Congress, as a governor, a judge in the judicial arena, or whatever, he or she cannot impose uh, their beliefs on others, but they can be guided by what they believe about the human person, uh, and so forth what the church teaches. Um, it's impossible and a total contradiction for a lay Catholic who holds public office to say that he or she believes in the dignity of the human person and is even personally opposed, for example, to abortion to support legislations or policies that support the destruction of innocent life. It's a contradiction. Um, I don't want to ruffle any feathers here because you're all New Yorkers, but I was utterly appalled when the governor of New York, I don't know whether it was last year or the year before, when he signed into law a bill that would allow what amounts to infanticide, um, then celebrated by lighting up the Empire State Building. 
that was a total contradiction and a betrayal of his role as a lay Catholic. Yeah. It's not imposing one's faith on, on others to oppose such evils. What did the text say, the earlier one we read? We have to have the courage to expose and denounce evil. And that's, that's not support evil, not legislate evil, which is exactly what Governor Cuomo did, right? It's acting in accord with what we believe about the dignity of the human person from conception to natural death. Okay. One area where that I think is worth uh, discussion is the relationship between faith and politics. Um, I've heard Catholics say uh, all too often that the church should stay out of politics. Well, the church can't stay out of politics. Politics is what? It's a part of life. Politics is about the behavior of human institutions and the exercise of power. Of course, you know, that arena needs to be guided by the spirit of truth, the spirit of the gospel. If it's not, then it can become an agency, an agency that crushes the dignity of the human person. And we see that happening, right? A lot of places, right? Not just in abortion on demand in this country, but politicians who want to impose their agenda on the nation. During the Obama administration, the government tried to force the Little Sisters of the Poor to provide contraceptive services that violated their beliefs and values. Forced it on them. Uh, the, we've seen in, in China, in Hong Kong, people clamoring for democratic freedoms that have been placed into conflict with the totalitarian government in Beijing. Uh, or in Iran, where an Islamic state the, has been imposed on the people by the government. Right? Um, the need for the church to be present in politics is as urgent as ever, okay? So there needs to be not an imposition uh, of faith in the public square, but the freedom for faith-filled people to live and work according to their own principles in the public square. That's all I'm saying, okay? Father? Yeah. Father, ask a quick question or, or mention a quick question? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, every year I organize the March for Life for my parish down to Washington, and uh, we always have a small group of people that break off from the big march and they go through the pol political offices and sign the books and, and things like that. And, you know, curiously to what you're, you're saying now, one politician um, was telling them he's so thankful that they come down and they sign the book and don't ever stop coming down. And he says, but I have to vote with the views of my people who elected me. And so, you know, what do you say to that? I mean, it's, it's a, he's he was uh, he's is he wrong? I mean, the people that elected him into office yeah. are pro-choice and yeah. they want to push a pro-choice agenda. He himself personally is pro-life. What can he do? What can I tell him next time that he should be doing? So he's going to compromise himself to get elected. But then without him, we don't have a pro-life voice or somebody who may vote pro-life in some of the other bills. I don't know. I'm confused about it. So what good is a pro what good is a pro-life uh, politician if he won't take a stand on it? He's well, pro-life in name. He's pro-life in name. Right. But not doing anything concretely to help the cause of pro-life. Right. He's not trying to convince his people, his the people he support, that pro-choice is wrong. If and, he yeah. let me say this. If he has 
pol- other policies that are good for the uh, that serve the common good that his voters uh, see as a value. Uh, they may not. They may, and he can. And he came out and said, "I am pro-life, and I'm going to stand on that." I think. I think maybe they'll they'll still elect him. Maybe they'll still support him because they like him. They either like him as a person, or they more and more. Moreover, they like his policies, um, because most people are not single-issue voters anyway. Yeah. Well, I am. I only vote for the ones that are pro-life. <laughs> well. It's a very important issue, you know, for Catholics. How many Catholics vote for pro-abortion candidates? Keep them in office year after year. How, uh, many, how many Catholics will continue to vote for Governor Cuomo because he's doing a great job, perceived to be doing a great job during this crisis? I believe there's a bunch out there. There's a bunch Every out Catholic there that would do that, you know. New York voted for a pro-life governor, there might you might get one. Right. Connecticut is just same thing in Connecticut, Massachusetts, California, all these states like that. Right. Because especially after lighting up the Empire State Building, oh. after signing a bill that allows infanticide, my God, that was demonic. Yeah. That was diabolically evil. Mm-hmm. So you don't care having somebody represent you like that? That votes on you. You answer for them. You answer for that that vote for all, to Almighty God as a Catholic someday, right? So let me get started on this. I'm going to get aggravated. I, I know I didn't mean to bring you off topic, but it's well, I started it. So, but <laughs> now let us look at the next beautiful entry from Christi Fidelis Laici, number twenty three. I'm going to come back to that later uh, because you sparked a fire. Um. Let's see. Who hasn't read? Paul, did you read? Paul Montanero, did you read? No, I no, I just asked you the big question, so I'll read, okay? Since well, that's Vinny's job. <laughs> the various ministries, offices, and roles that the lay faithful can legitimately fulfill in the in liturgy, in the transmission of the faith, and in the pastoral structure of the church ought to be exercised in conformity to their specific lay vocation which is different from that of sacred ministry. In this regard, the exhortation, Evangelii Nutiandi. Okay, let's pause there because I don't want you to not understand what you're reading. I don't know. Okay. Uh, pardon me if, if, you, if you've heard of this document. Uh, you might not have. Uh, Evangelii Nunciandi is the Latin for to proclaim, uh, in proclaiming the gospel. Uh, it's about evangelization in the modern world. It was an apostolic um, exhortation written by uh, Pope St. Paul VI in 1975. That's what he's referring to there. Okay, go on. Okay. Uh, in, rega- in, re- in this regard, the exhortation of the Evan- Evangelii Nunciandi, oh boy, uh, that had such a great part in stimulating the varied collaboration of the faithful in the church's life and mission of spreading the gospel recalls that their own field of evangelization activity is the vast and complicated world of politics, society, and economics, as well as the world of culture, of the sciences and arts, of the international life and mass media. It also includes other realities which are open to evangelization, such as human love, the family, the education of children and adolescents, professional work, and suffering. 
the more gospel-inspired lay people there are engaged in these realities, clearly involved in them, competent to promote them and conscious that they must exercise to their full Christian powers, which are often represented and buried, the more these realities will be at the service of the kingdom of God and therefore at the service of salvation in Jesus Christ without in any way losing or sacrificing their human content, but rather pointing to a transcendent dimension, which is often disregarded. Look at that. What a beautiful statement that was. Oh, yeah. Truly inspired by St. John Paul II. Right? Your, your field of evangelizing activity is the vast and complicated world of politics, society, and economics. Actually, that's quoting Paul VI, another saint. He's quoting Paul VI. Wow. Uh, the world of sciences, arts, international life, mass media, you name it. Wherever you can go. I can't go into those places, but you do, right? So the world becomes the place and the means for the lady to fulfill their vocation, okay? Because the world itself is destined to glorify God the Father in Christ. So now we go another beautiful, rather long, well, we'll break this up so we don't have the same person having to read it. I'll read the first part. This is now Christopher Day's Laity number 15. In fact, the council, and it's referring to the Second Vatican Council there, in describing the lay faithful's situation in the secular world, points to it above all as the place in which they receive their call from God. There they are called by God. This place is treated and presented in dynamic terms. The lay faithful live in the world, that is, in every one of the secular professions and occupations. They live in the ordinary circumstances of family and social life from which the very fabric of their existence is woven. They are persons who live an ordinary life in the world. They study, they work, they form relationships as friends, professionals, members of society, cultures, etc. However, the council considers their condition not simply an external and environmental framework, but listen to this, as a reality destined to find in Jesus Christ the fullness of its meaning. Indeed, it leads to the affirmation that the Word made flesh willed to share in human fellowship. He sanctified those human ties, especially family ones, from which social relationships arise, willingly submitting himself to the laws of his country. He chose to lead the life of an ordinary craftsman of his own time and place. See, Jesus is your model. You know, he lived uh, uh, essentially as a layman in the world, right? Um, sanctifying the world, the culture, wherever he went, whatever he did, right? All right, let's go for the the, sec the second uh, half of that uh, quote. Um, somebody? Anybody? Um, I'll do it. Thank you. The world thus becomes the place and the means for the lay faithful to, to fulfill their Christian vocation, because the world itself is destined to glorify God the Father in Christ. The council is able then to indicate the proper and special sense of the divine vocation, which is directed to the lay faithful. 
They are not called to abandon the position that they have in the world. Baptism does not take them from the world at all, as the Apostle Paul points out. So, brethren, in whatever state each was called, there let him remain with God. On the contrary, he entrusts a vocation to them that properly concerns their situation in the world. The lay faithful, in fact, are called by God so that they, led by the spirit of the gospel, might contribute to the sanctification of the world as from within like leaven by fulfilling their own particular duties. Thus, especially in this way of life, resplendent in faith, hope, and charity, they manifest Christ to others. Thus, for the lay faithful, be present and active in the world is not only an anthropological and sociological reality, but in a specific way, a theological and ecclesiological reality as well. In fact, in their situation in the world, God manifests his plan and communicates to them their particular vocation of seeking the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering them according to the plan of God. Okay, so you know, it's this is such a beautiful document. I recommend it. It's rather long. I mean, it's not a short document, Christopher D. Leachie. Uh, you can buy it, or you can. It's online on the Vatican website. You know, just 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 pop that, type in, in Google Christopher Daly Leachie. You'll find the whole entire document in several places. It's really worth reading uh, for your own edification. Uh, the entire document, and I've only given you snippets here. Um, but notice what it says, that baptism does not take you out of the world. You are to remain in the world because that's where God has called you. I remember in my first parish, there was a lovely woman. She used to come to daily mass, and then she would stay afterwards, and she'd often pray, we would pray the, the morning prayer, the office and she liked to join me in praying that. And she ended up spending hours, hours upon hours inside the church. Until finally one day her husband got upset with her. He said, you know, you got to cook dinner for us. The kids are home. They're by, you know, especially in the summer. What are you doing in church all day? And um, she tried to explain to him. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to be a good Catholic. <laughs> And I, I said, so, so, and I knew them well. I, I'd been to their homes for dinner many times. Anyway, um, so she came back and, t and she's telling me all of this, you know. And I said, but, you know, um, you, don't, you don't be a good Catholic by spending your hours in church and then not being available to your children and your husband. That's not where God has called you. Yeah, you can come and do a holy hour. You come to Mass, you could do a holy hour. But then you take what you receive and you go back to them and serve them because that's your primary vocation. You want to be a good Catholic. It's not just receiving the sacraments. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's also fulfilling the duties of your state in life as a wife and mother. That's where God is going to sanctify you and sanctify your family and by extension the whole world. So it took her a while to kind of get that, figure that out, you know, but um, 
I says, no, your husband has a good grievance. He's, he's right. You should be at home. So come to daily mass. You want to stay and pray afterwards, do the rosary or whatever you want to do. Fine. But then go home. Don't spend three hours here, you know, in front of the blessed sacrament. Jesus would be happier if you went home and served your family than sitting here for three hours like a nun. You're not a nun. <laughs> oh, father, father, <laughs> father, on, the, on that point, I, I heard uh, St. John Paul, he was asked about why the Catholic Mass is an hour and other religions, maybe the Eastern Rites and, and the Orthodox are very long services. And his answer was, because we are an evangelizing people. We are in the world. So it's the same it's the same point. Yep, it's true. So thankfully she she adjusted herself accordingly and everybody was happy, including especially her husband and her children. Okay. Um I we still have a ways to go through uh, the laity and then to begin uh, the nature of consecrated life, religious life. So it's almost 8 o'clock. So why don't you take a 15-minute break and come back at um, uh, come back at, 10, at 8.15, let's say. All right? We know how oppressive those things can be when the values of human dignity are forgotten or are ignored. Uh, when it's forgotten that the human person exists uh, and has dignity unto him or herself, uh, not as a means to be used for something else, we have a problem. Right? Otherwise, we find exploitation. When the person becomes a tool, an object for some other end, the human person is of value as an end in him or herself. That's very important teaching of the church. Um, we see that problem, especially in totalitarian states, where the dignity and rights of the individual are set aside uh, in the interest of the state. The human person is placed. Can you just watch this for me? Uh, in this world, as a good by God. Okay. Uh, and everything in the world is placed here to serve the good of the human person. Okay, when Catholics understand and believe that, act on it, they can work toward healing institutions and structures. Okay, and when they don't, we have a problem. Um, you know, do you know that Adolf Hitler was a Catholic? He was baptized a Catholic. Instead, he abandoned that to take up National Socialism and brought horror upon the world. If only he had been faithful to his vocation as a Catholic, there may have, been another, there may have not been a Second World War. Yeah. Joseph Stalin in the seminary. was in the seminary. He was great, the devout East, uh, Russian Orthodox Christian. He entered the seminary to study for the priesthood. In the course of his studies, he became an atheist. I don't know how you study theology and become an atheist, but that's what happened to him. And then he became one of the most worst mass murderers in human history. So you see how important this is. I mean, those are extreme cases, right? 
the healing and sanctification of culture. That's another one for the laity. It's part of your mission. Culture involves the entire system of beliefs, practices, etc., that convey value to persons. The arts and the sciences, the entertainment world. Um, when these become debased by a failure to appreciate the dignity of human persons, um, then you have, again, exploitation, pornography, injustice, all of that, right? Um, okay, so people who hold public office especially can help heal the culture, right? Um, again, if they are guided by the spirit of the gospel. Okay. I have a quote now uh, from note on some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life. Shows you we would come back to this a little bit. Um, let's read that very, very important uh, doctrinal note there. Uh, who would like to read it for us? I'll read it, Father. Thank you. By fulfilling their civic duties, guided by a Christian conscience, in conformity with its values, the lay faithful exercise their proper task of infusing the temporal order with Christian values, all the while respecting the nature and rightful autonomy of that order and cooperating with other citizens according to their particular competence and responsibility. The consequence of this fundamental teaching of the Second Vatican Council is that the lay faithful are never to relinquish their participation in public life. That is, in the many different economic, social, legislative, administrative, and cultural areas, which are intended to promote organically and institutionally the common good. This would include the promotion and defense of goods such as public order and peace, freedom and equality, respect for human life, and for the environment, justice, and solidarity. Okay, and I may have given you a, a complete quote um, link there to the Vatican website where you could read that in its entirety. Yes. That document has much good to say about the role of Christians in public and political life. But I can add another word about Catholics in public life. When they contradict the faith in egregious ways by supporting legislation that protects abortion uh, and whether or not that person should even receive Holy Communion. This has been kind of an issue, uh, mostly among the bishops, about whether they should uh, solemnly uh, excommunicate um, Catholic politicians who uh, support and vote for abortion, or just encourage them not to receive communion even, okay? That's been a frequent question in recent years uh, with more and more Catholic position, uh, politicians taking up positions that contradict the faith, where they profess to accept, as you mentioned before, Paul, accept the church teaching, but then they act differently in their public life. Some argue that we shouldn't make Holy Communion a battleground, uh, but that's not what this is about. It's a question of a Catholic, if a Catholic is receiving communion, with integrity or not. This is very important. If a Catholic contradicts the faith that he or she believes, 
and professes in public life uh, in a different way and then approaches communion at mass, there's a huge contradiction there. They're saying that in one part of their life, and this is an answer you might want to give your Catholic politician friend there, Paul. They're saying that in one part of their life, I don't want to be guided by the spirit of truth and the gospel of Christ. And then they're saying when they come to mass, I do want to be intimately united to Jesus through Holy Communion and his body, the church, and have my whole life transformed by him so I can become a transformative force for the sake of the faith in the world. Well, which is it? You can't have it both ways. You have to you have to be loyal to Christ and the causes of, that Christ puts forth all the time. Those are two completely contradictory statements that I just said. See? So when it said that when it when it said in the church that someone in public life is contradicting the faith in a very serious matter and should not receive communion, it's not a question of making it a penalty but a question about speaking the truth about your life. Decide whether or not you want to be guided by the principles and teachings of the Catholic faith or go the other way. You're free. They're free to decide. They're, they're totally free to decide, but act with integrity. If you want to live your, your public life in contradiction to the faith, that's as serious as a priest not wanting to celebrate Mass. It's as simple as that. Now, as a Eucharistic minister, I asked one of the priests in my church uh, one time, I says, if I get to the line, I'm on the line there with the Ciborium, and I notice on my line, here comes Governor Cuomo. This is right after he lit up the Empire State Building, as you said before, in celebration of abortion. I said, am I in my own right to deny him communion? Uh, it wasn't abortion, it was infanticide. Oh, but right, I'm sorry, infanticide, yes. Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Um, technically, we're yeah. trained as priests, we should never deny the Eucharist to anyone who approaches us. Mm. Okay, Because it's really their decision whether or not to receive. Now, there are priests who might refuse him communion, but of course then there's going to be a big to-do, it'll end up on Facebook uh, and God knows where else. You know, and they might even get into difficulty with the cardinal if they if it's a priest of the archdiocese. Um, I think it's up to the bishops to decide whether or not to excommunicate or say to their priests to give them guidance. Mm -hmm. If so and so approaches, you're not to give them communion. But it's not up to the priest to do that. We were trained. I was trained too in the seminary that when someone approaches communion, you give them the Eucharist. Especially since you cannot know in that moment uh, the exact state of their souls before God. All right. um, so, you know, they receive and they, if they receive and they commit a sacrilege, that's on them. You know, it's not on you, it's not on me, it's on the extraordinary minister or the priest, it's on them. Because they should know better than to approach. Right. Yeah, just to. His, his answer, by the way, to me was, if you see him sitting there before Mass, you come and get 
a priest like me, he says. And then what I will do is I will go to him quietly before Mass begins and ask him if he has changed his position on the infanticide. And he said, and he, if he says no, then he said, I would simply ask him to please not come up to receive communion. So then at that point, then it's up to, it's up to him whether or not he still goes up to receive communion. Right, right. And I would add to that, uh, Governor, if you do come up to receive, you will be committing the sin of sacrilege, which is a mortal sin of the gravest kind against a desecration of the body of the Lord. I, I, now that you mentioned it, I believe he told me that too, yes, that he, had, he would tell me. guilty of sacrilege um, and desecrating the body of Christ. Well, you're going to answer for that. That's a sure road to hell. Yeah. But, but the typical, Father, the typical Catholic politician's argument is not so direct. It's, I should not substitute my morality for so-and-so, another person. That's yeah. the typical. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I've heard it a million times. But after taking this class and this lecture tonight, we should know better. Yes. The vocation of the laity is to live the faith in the midst of the structures of the world and thereby sanctify it. If you refuse to do that, it's a very serious matter. So, you know, um, in my public life, I don't want. I don't want to do that. In my public life, I don't want to sanctify the world. I just want to exercise power and get elected and enjoy all the privileges of my office. In my private life, oh, I do want to receive communion and be united to Jesus. Yeah. And you do that by offending Jesus gravely. So, you know, these are important matters. If there were a persecution of the church, if it became illegal to be a Catholic, what would be the evidence to convict you or me? Where would we stand? Hmm? So, I think I said enough about that. You got the point. Um, let's move on to the nature and mission of consecrated life or the religious life. Consecrated or religious life uh, is marked by the solemn profession of the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And this has become a permanent uh, fact of life in the church from the earliest times. Um, I don't know if you've taken church history, but in the very early parts of the church, the beginning of the church, the church was, uh, we had the age of the martyrs. So martyrdom was conceived as the, the highest form of living the faith. That if you gave your life and laid down and shed your blood for Christ, um, that was the summit of holiness. When the age of martyrdom ended, uh, we began to see movements, um, virginity, monastic life. Uh, these came into being. And so virginity and, 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 and chaste celibacy became the norm, the highest form of life. 
in place of martyrdom. It was considered a kind of dry martyrdom where you would lay down your life and give up the goods of marriage um, to follow Christ wholeheartedly. So this all started in the early uh, ages of the church and it took various forms. Um, but every Christian is called to live out the spirit of the councils. Um, but they'll be different, obviously, uh, for the layperson than they would be for the religious. Um, so in Catechism Entry uh, 915, we're, giving, we're given a nice introduction into what the evangelical councils are. Uh, so, Vinny, why don't you read that for us, please? Christ proposes the evangelical councils in their great variety to every disciple. The perfection of charity to which all the faithful are called entails for those who freely follow the call to consecrated life, the obligation of practicing chastity and celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, poverty, and obedience. It is the profession of these councils within a permanent state of life recognized by the church that categorizes the life consecrated to God. Christ proposes the evangelical councils in their great variety to every disciple. The perfection of charity to which all the faithful are called entails for those who freely follow the call consecrated life. Hang on yeah. a minute there. Hang on a minute there because I'm reading this and I'm saying, well, we just read that. So I think I had a senior moment and put the, the text twice. Did you pick that up? Yeah. I'm a senior father, so uh, I don't I don't know. So you, you read it. Actually, you read it. Well, then Vita Consecrata. Now, this is another encyclical that St. John Paul II wrote. Uh, he did a tremendous service to the church during his long pontificate. He dealt with just about everything uh, imaginable. And in this one... Uh, the consecrated life it's just as he wrote Christi Fidelis Laici for the laity the vocation of the laity there he wrote this con he wrote Vita Consecrata for the vocation of the religious and the monastic life okay so let's look at that beautiful text um someone else I'll try it please uh, evangelical basis the evangelical basis of consecrated life is to be sought in the special relationship with Jesus in his earthly life, established with some of his disciples. He called them not only to welcome the kingdom of God into their own lives, but also to put their lives at his service, leaving everything behind and closely imitating his own way of life. Many of the baptized throughout history have been invited to live such a life in the image of Christ. But this is possible only on the basis of a special vocation and in virtue of a particular gift of the Spirit. For in such a life, baptismal consecration develops into a radical response in the following of Christ through acceptance of the evangelical councils. The first and essential of which is a sacred bond of chastity for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the purpose of the evangelical councils is the imitation of Christ. So the religious and the monks uh, and nuns who 
who consecrate themselves to God in this way by means of these three vows, these three councils as they're called, they do so because they want to more closely imitate Jesus' own way of life. They want to imitate his poverty, his chastity, his obedience to the Father. By doing so, they conform their lives more closely to his, and his life then is reproduced in them. Now, this is the purpose of all Christian life. The whole spiritual life is all about reproducing within ourselves the life of Jesus, his virtues, his humanity, his kindness, his patience, uh, his simplicity, his purity, uh, his obedience, uh, his, his charity, his humility. You name the virtue. They're all embodied perfectly in the person of our Lord. But depending on what your vocation is, that's going to be accomplished in different ways. The means for most of us are common. The reception of this, the worthy reception of the sacraments, the life of prayer, a life of sacrifice, uh, worship, so forth. Um, but, but that's the goal of the spiritual life, which then leads to perfect union with God uh, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, which is the purpose of human existence. Okay? So laity will, 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 will do that in their own particular way, and the religious do it by means of the councils, by the profession of the councils. Um, religious life isn't an intermediate state between lay and, and the clerical state. Uh, individuals are called from both the lay and the clerical state uh, to such to the profession of the councils, right? We all know, we know this, right? We all know men and women um, who are both, um, we know men who are priests who are also religious. So you have the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Jesuits, uh, the Carmelites. They're, they're composed of both uh, religious brothers and sisters as well as priests. Um, there's a Trinitarian structure to religious life as well. Um, and Vita Consecrata uh, speaks about that, that um, there's this Trinitarian nature of the Christian life in which it says, anticipates in a certain way that eschatological fulfillment towards which the whole church is trending. It's eschatological. Do you know what that word means? Yes, the coming of the kingdom. Yeah, it, it pertains okay. to the last things, the ultimate destiny of every person as well as the whole world, okay? Religious life is a witness to that, you know? We're going to see uh, how uh, shortly. But um, Vita Consecrata, I shortened it to VC, number 20, it says that these councils are a gift of the Holy Trinity. Why? Because it proclaims, it says, what the Father through the Son and in the Spirit brings about by his love, his goodness, and beauty. See? The religious state reveals the transcendence of the kingdom and its requirements over all earthly things. See, it's a witness that God is above all. That God is the most important person, the supreme being, over everything and over all creation. The religious is a witness to that, bearing witness to that truth. A constant reminder, whenever you see a religious in their habit, 
it's a constant reminder this person's living a different life this person is bearing witness to a life beyond this life a life beyond this world and therefore all created things have to be seen in their proper perspective In Vita Consecrata number 21, somebody read back. Am I reading it? Okay. Um, The deepest meaning of the evangelical councils is revealed when they are viewed in relation to the Holy Trinity, the source of, of holiness. They are, in fact, an expression of the love of the Son for the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. By practicing the evangelical counsels, the consecrated person lives with particular intensity, the Trinitarian and Christological dimension, which marks the whole of Christian life. So the counsels, uh, they are officially accepted by a bishop usually. It serves the liberty of spirit that comes with freedom from attachments to worldly things. That's what the vow of poverty is about. Um, In order so that they can belong to Christ in a more undivided way. Chastity has the same purpose. They give up the goods of marriage to cling to Christ with an undivided heart. Um, It's really, the councils can be looked upon as an intensification of the baptismal calling that all Christians have, as I said before. It's rooted in baptism, uh, but it's a total dedication. Um, So they're trying to pursue the life of perfection, of spiritual, religious perfection, uh, more radically, right? This doesn't belong to the hierarchical structure of the church alone. It belongs to the whole church in her essence and her holiness. Um, So we can skip over the next few and I want to get to the mission of religious. Okay. So this, the first is the eschatological nature of religious life. This is one of your questions. It gives witness to the fundamental values of the gospel and the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom that is in the world, but not of the world. Okay. Let's look at, um, Vita Consecrata number 26. Uh, maybe start, I don't know, Diane, do you want to start again? Since the demands of the apostolate today are increasingly urgent, and since involvement in temporal affairs risks becoming ever more absorbing, it is particularly opportune to draw attention once more to the eschatological nature of the consecrated life. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart, there your heart be also. The unique treasure of the kingdom gives rise to desire, anticipation, commitment, and witness. In the early church, the expectation of the Lord's coming was lived in a particularly intense way. With the passing of the centuries, the church has not ceased to foster this attitude of hope. She has continued to invite the faithful to look to the salvation which is waiting to be revealed. For the form of this world is passing away. It is in this perspective that we can understand more clearly the role of the consecrated life as an eschatological sign. In fact, it has constantly been taught that the consecrated life 
is a foreshadowing of the future kingdom. Okay, so you know that so many people today, um, especially unbelievers, you know, they, they live as if this life was going to last forever. I mean, everybody knows they're going to die, but they just kind of push it out of their minds and live on the surface of life. And, you know, they think life is about the pursuit of pleasure or excitement or entertainment or you have it's this it's focused in other words solely on the rewards and joys of this present life but what religious life does religious life consecrated life is a reminder to everyone that yeah not only are you going to die but there is a life after this one this and that's the life we're called to that human life has a destiny and it's beyond the perimeters of this life we're called to heaven our life is going to be in heaven for all eternity. And the religious are a constant reminder to the world of that fact by the way they live. That's what it means when it says it's an eschatological sign of the future kingdom that we're all created for, right? But we often forget about or push aside in favor of more immediate joys, more immediate excitements and pleasures, you know? So they're, they're saying, hey, wait a minute. Okay, you know, enjoy your ice cream, but remember, there's a life beyond this one. And when we die, where are we going to go? That's the life we're called to, the highest form, perfect union with God in the kingdom, with all the angels and saints. That's exactly what is meant by the eschatological nature of and witness of the religious life. Then we have a prophetic witness. Notice how the laity have their own witness in the world, right? Prophetic, priestly, kingly. Well, the religious also, except it's exercised in a different way, right? So the prophetic witness is to the primacy of God and the future goods of the resurrection uh, and the glory of God's kingdom, okay? All these are kind of closely associated. So let's look at Vita Consecrata number 84, Anybody? The prophetic character of the consecrated life was strongly emphasized by the Synod Fathers. It takes the shape of a special form of sharing in Christ's prophetic office, which the Holy Spirit communicates to the whole people of God. There is a prophetic dimension which belongs to the consecrated life as such, resulting from the radical nature of the following of Christ and of the subsequent dedication to the mission characteristic of the consecrated life. The sign value, which the Second Vatican Council acknowledges in the consecrated life, is expressed in prophetic witness to the primacy which God and the truths of the gospel have in the Christian life. Okay, sign value, you see? So a religious in his or her habit is a sign. That's why they wear the habit to set them apart, to show they are consecrated to God, following a particular charism of their particular congregation or, or religious order. So um, the charism of the Jesuits, of the Dominicans, uh, well, let's say the Dominicans, are they're my favorite because I was raised by them. The, um, the consecration of uh, the, the Dominican vocation or charism is... Which the uh, the assiduous study of sacred truth 
the study of theology, assiduous study, they say, that bears fruit in apostolic preaching. That's why they're called the order of preachers. The Franciscan, their charism would be what? Joyful poverty. Um, Carmelites, the mystical tradition, mystical prayer, contemplative prayer in the world. Um, And each particular community, religious order, has their own particular charism uh, that's lived out by means of the councils and whatever apostolate they have. Now, the next document is taken from the Vatican Synod Secretariat. It's called The Consecrated Life and Its Role in the Church and the World. And this particular entry, uh, again, this is a beautiful document, but again, I just had to take snippets. There's a very beautiful entry here that is kind of summary in nature. So let's read that. That's beautiful. Um, uh, James, let's hear from you again. In communion with the other members of the people of God, consecrated persons share in the prophetic office of Christ through their through their witness to the gospel. The prophecy of the consecrated life is a sign to the church and the world. By the profession of chastity, they anticipate in their flesh the new world of the resurrection. By their practice of poverty, they manifest the supreme value of the kingdom of God over all human and earthly goods. By their sharing of goods, they proclaim the universal destination of everything for the glory of God and for the good of all. They attest to the value of work when it is performed in freedom of spirit. Adhering to God's will and obedience, they proclaim the kingly way of submission to the Heavenly Father's loving plan. By their life and words, they are an invitation and sometimes a provocation for everyone, faithful and pastors alike, to serve the Lord purely and freely in fidelity to the covenant of love. They propose anew the value and the memory of God's original plan, which sin has obscured, and are a sign of the yearning with which all humanity awaits the total revelation of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so how beautiful is that? Chastity anticipates the resurrection of the flesh. Poverty, that earthly goods and human goods, whatever they may be, are inferior to those values of the kingdom. Obedience, submission to the Father's will. Of the three, by the way, uh, if you ask most religious, they'll tell you that obedience is the most difficult because it involves a surrendering of your will to that of your superior. And the will of God is mediated through the will of their superior. Whether they agree with that will or not. Uh, so it's difficult because you have to put that, you have to in a way put your own will to death, what you want, what you think is the best way, uh, and submit it to that of your superior, as if God himself was uh, commanding you. And they, they often find that to be the most, because it requires great humility uh, to be able to, to submit to that, to another person that way. Father, a, a little anecdote, a Jesuit that I know told off his uh, superior and his next two-year term was in Nome, Alaska, where he, where it was 40 degrees below zero every morning. <laughs> so, uh, yes, there's a certain amount of obedience involved. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, they, they could transfer you. 
I had a Dominican spiritual director uh, one time, and he, he, he said to me, I was interested in, in becoming a Dominican at one point. And um, he said to me, well, you know, in our life, he said, the superior can take you like this. Like, he's like, let's say you're over here. They can pick you up and tell you you are to go here or you are to go there. He went like this with his hands. Yeah, you go there. And there's nothing you can do about it. You have to submit your will to the superior. Whereas diocesan priests like myself, we submit our wills to the bishop. And, you know, you don't have your bishop living with you all the time, as you would your superior. So it's really our obedience is much easier. But you never know. I mean, I got a call once. Let me give you an example of this. I, um, I was a student in Rome. I just finished my licentiate degree, and I was about to begin doctoral studies. And um, I was all set to begin my doctoral studies. And one day I get a call from the Episcopal vicar of my diocese. The Episcopal vicar is the vicar. Remember that word? Someone who represents someone else. Episcopal vicar. He represented, at the time, Bishop Egan. He leaves a voice message for me on my phone that I cannot proceed with doctoral studies because a priest left the priesthood and I'm needed to go be the chaplain of Colby Cathedral High School in Bridgeport in the inner city. And this is what I'm listening to. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my on. What has Chaplain at a inner city high school in Bridgeport from being a scholar, a pre-scholar in Rome from this to that. Oh, I was like beside myself. And again, I had to be obedient to my bishop, right? Just as a religious has to be obedient. Turned out to be one of my best assignments, by the way. Every priest and religious should trust, trust God with their assignments because uh, even if it goes against the grain, it's something you might not want to do. Uh, if they're, if you're being asked to do this, God is behind it, and it's going to turn out just fine, right? So even coming to Dunwoody, you know, I was a pastor. I was very happy to stay there. But it's this now I'd say this was my best assignment. <laughs> See, I never would have got to meet you, Vinny. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Jones in the class too, you know. All right. Now, so that's the um, um, prophetic witness. Now we have the priestly witness. Remember, what's priestly? Offering to God. An offering to God. Offering the whole day of our life to the Father through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Let's look at that second part of that document that describes what that priestly witness is. Go ahead, Joan. In their life, religious and other members of institutes of consecrated life exercise a priesthood and a spiritual worship in virtue of their profession of the evangelical councils. Living according to Christ's example, they make their life an offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God, made holy in the spirit. By the offering of their own body and their total dedication to God, with an undivided heart in chastity, by their cho choice of the poverty of Christ, which sets them free from idolatry to serve God and open to the needs of their brothers and sisters. 
by their gift of self, gift of self through obedience in communion with Christ in order to do the Father's will in everything. They are a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice for the salvation of the world. In communion with Christ, the consecrated life is Eucharistic and cultic. So you see how the document is taking each one of these um, witnesses and showing us how each of the evangelical councils is living that particular witness out. So now here, the priestly witness, the uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's to make their lives a sacrificial offering pleasing to God. That's very priestly, see? So what are we told? Chastity, they're offering God an undivided heart. Even their bodies are offered to God, right? Uh, poverty sets them free from the idolatry to serve God alone, right? And obedience, a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice for the salvation of the world, the slaying of their own will uh, to do the will of the Father as mediated through their superiors. See that? And then finally, we have the kingly witness. That's about transforming the world through the life of radical proclamation of the gospel, okay? The, uh, by the way, the transformation of European culture uh, was, was, uh, was accomplished uh, in the Middle Ages through the monastic tradition. They could certainly use, uh, you know, a renewal there, too. So let's see now how this document talks about that. Now, don't wait for Papa to call on you. <laughs> uh, let me try that. Um, consecrated persons are called to proclaim Christ's kingly office, which makes them free, sound, and open to universal communion for the sake of building the kingdom. This comes about on the kingly road to charity with hearts open to love of God and neighbor and chastity by the joyful experience of poverty, which in this world already reaps a hundredfold benefits in personal and communal life, promised to those who seek the kingdom and through their freedom strengthened by obedience, which permits them in imitation of Christ to dedicate themselves entirely to the Father's affairs. In this manner of life, is rooted the glory and the gift of service, because to serve is to reign. This gift finds its total fulfillment in the unreserved self-giving of the whole human person, in the spirit of conjugal love for Christ and with Christ to all those women and men who are truly consecrated to him according to the evangelical councils. Okay, so that tells us about the kingly office. And then finally, and this is one of the questions on your questions for review, um, we have, again, Vita Consecrata, number 21 by Pope St. John Paul II, um, where he describes the value of each of these councils. So let's take a look at that, and then we'll move on to the next topic. Um, again, somebody, anybody, I don't care. The chastity of celibates and virgins as a manifestation of dedication to God 
with an undivided heart is a reflection of the infinite love which links the three divine persons in the mysterious depths of the Trinity, the life of the Trinity, the love to which the incarnate word bears witness to the point of giving his life, the love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which evokes a response of total love for God and the brethren. Hmm. Poverty proclaims that God is man's only real treasure. When poverty is lived according to the example of Christ, who, through he was, though he was rich, became poor, it becomes an expression of that total gift of self, which the three divine persons make to one another. This gift overflows into creation and is fully fulfilled in the incarnation of the word and in his redemptive death. Obedience, practiced in imitation of Christ, whose food was to do the Father's will, shows the liberating beauty of the dependence, which is not servile, but filial, marked by a deep sense of responsibility and animated by mutual trust, which is a reflection in history of the loving harmony between the three divine persons. Okay, thank you. That's a very beautifully beautiful way to sum up uh, the, the, the um, topic of religious and consecrated life. Now, our next topic is the church as a communion of churches, uh, universal, particular, and local churches. So let's get our terminology straight. Even though there is only one church of Christ, this one church is made present and manifest. Uh, it's manifested on different levels. Okay, so we have the universal church, etc., the whole church. But then we have the church in a given locale. Uh, Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians 1-2 uh, when he says, um, Paul called to be a possible to the church of God that is in Corinth. So he's addressing the local church that exists in the city, the Greek city of Corinth there. Um, Lumen Gentium 26 um, this church of Christ, meaning the whole Catholic Church, is truly present in all legitimate local congregations of the faithful, which united with their pastors are themselves called churches in the New Testament. For in their locality, these are the new people called by God in the Holy Spirit and in much fullness. In them, the faithful are gathered together by the preaching of the gospel and the mystery of the Lord's Supper, etc. Um, in any community of the altar, under the sacred ministry of the bishop, there is exhibited a symbol of that charity and unity of the mystical body, without which there can be no salvation. So, this was on one of your questions. This is one of your questions. The where the diocese is the center of that local church. So, where do we find the local church? We find it in any diocese or archdiocese, or in the case of the Eastern uh, Rite Eparchy, like the Ukrainian Eparchy, uh, the Catholic Ukrainians in the Eparchy of Stamford would be uh, another example of that. But mystically, the diocese or archdiocese. So when we speak of a church in a particular location, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, St. John the Baptist in Yonkers or something like that. I'm talking about the diocese. We speak of the Church of New York. 
the Church of Brooklyn, the Church of Rockville Center, the Church of Bridgeport. The Universal Church is a communion of churches, local and particular. And each church shares in this full reality that is the mystical body of Christ. Okay? And it makes that mystical body present in any given place. Okay? Got that? So the Universal Church, it's a communion of churches. But the church is also present in particular churches. Um, the particular churches, such as the Eastern Catholic churches. Uh, now, there's, just be aware there's some ambiguity, of, uh, uh, ambiguous terminology um, here, because in some of the church documents, uh, such as Lumen Gentium and the decree on bishops, the expression particular churches is sometimes used also to, de to designate dioceses. Okay, it can get a little confusing, a local church. Um, but in this course, I've used the term local church to designate uh, the church strictly on the diocesan level. Okay, so for our purpose in this course, when I speak of a local church, I'm talking about churches on the archdiocesan or diocesan level, okay? In Vatican II's decree on the Eastern churches, on the other hand, the term particular churches refers to, and in this course, we're going to use that, refers to these large ecclesial bodies, which are groupings of local churches under a particular tradition. So the Melkite, right? Uh, the Syro-Malabar tradition, uh, the Byzantine tradition. Ukrainian tradition. So when we speak of the particular churches, we're speaking about these larger churches that follow a particular tradition. That's why they're called particular. Okay? They're particular because they have their own particular liturgical rites and customs. Right? Um and they're, they're, they're very ancient, right? As we, we've already kind of touched on this a little bit. So when we consider these particular churches, there's a wide variety of uh, ancient ecclesial traditions that are in full communion with one another. Okay? And, and they bear witness to the, uh, to the meaning and also the richness of the unity and diversity within the Catholicity of the church. It's really amazing um, when we see how that multiplicity of witnesses and the proclamation of the faith in different areas actually melded into the culture of, of different regions, different places. Um, from the places where the faith first took root in ancient times, um, there's, there are all these distinct streams of apostolic tradition, each one transmitting the faith in its entirety. This is the origin of these particular churches. Uh, and they're presided over by various bishops in these very ancient seas. C with a capital S. So, for example, some of the ancient ones, the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the Byzantine Christian tradition, the Patriarchate of Alexandria, uh, the Coptic tradition there. Uh, the Patriarchate of Antioch, 
and the ancient traditions of the Middle East. So nowadays, because of the complexity of historical developments, there are subdivisions of even of those. Uh, for example, there are several different patriarchs of Antioch uh, for the Melkites, the Syrians, the Maronites. These are all different particular churches. Okay? And they each celebrate the liturgy in a different way. Um, primarily, they celebrate what they call the Divine Liturgy. The Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is kind of used on Sundays and during the week. And the other one is the Liturgy of St. Basil the Great. Those, the St. Basil's Liturgy is only used like for very solemn feast days. So they would celebrate the Divine Liturgy of St. Basil, um, like a Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, a transfiguration, you know, special solemnities. And they're all different from one another. And yet all of the elements of the Catholic faith are present in each and every one of them. Okay? Um, now, there are some of these large bodies, as we know, that are separated from communion with the Catholic Church, uh, the Orthodox, for example, and uh, they have been separated for, you know, almost a thousand years. But each of these particular churches have a Catholic body. Okay. Um, and the ones that are in union with Rome and are truly part of the Catholic Church, they're called the Uniate Churches. U-N-I-A-T-E. Uniate. Meaning they're in union with the Apostolic See of Rome. They're in full communion with the Holy See. So they're, they're just as Catholic as we are. <laughs> so Roman Catholics aren't the only Catholics. And there are great varieties in their liturgical traditions uh, and even their theological formulation um, uh, as well. But they profess one and the same faith with us. And they are in full communion with each other and with Rome. Okay? These are the Uniate churches. Um, so again, the Uniate Eastern Church of the Byzantine, the Ukrainian. I mean, the eparchy that I'm most familiar with is um, the, the, uh, the Ukrainian eparchy of Stamford, Connecticut. Because it's 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 a it's like a it's like a diocese within a diocese. Because here you have this Fairfield County, which is the entire diocese of Bridgeport, and then within that, in Stamford, you have the eparchy, as called, of of uh, the Ukrainian Catholics. But they're all in communion. We're in communion with all with them. Okay. Um, and there's this, they have such a diversity of tradition that shows that the faith is handed down in. It's not just handed down in just a list of doctrines. It's a whole worldview, right? A whole way of living uh, the faith in the church, a whole spiritual heritage, really, that may differ from one place to another, but are still Catholic nonetheless. Okay? They have different customs. Uh, they use different words for the same realities. And this is one of your questions, right? The Eastern particular churches... Uh, the Uniate Church, they don't use the word mass. 
to describe what we know as, of, as the Mass. They use the word, the Divine Liturgy. That's how they describe the Mass, the Divine Liturgy. For the word sacraments, they don't use the word sacraments, they use the word mysteries, the Divine Mysteries. But the Divine Liturgy is, in fact, the same sacrifice of Christ, the same Mass, if you will, but celebrated in a different way, using their particular rites, uh, even their particular language in some cases, which, which may differ, um, but perfectly valid. At Dunwoody, we train, uh, we have right now, um, what do I think? We have one right. Yeah, we have one one right now, and we've trained in the past uh, members of the Catholic Syro Malabar tradition. Uh, we are one of them. Uh, his name was uh, uh, I'll forget it. What was his name? He was ordained a priest in Toronto, and after he was ordained a priest for the Syro Malabars, he had to go to India to study ancient Syriac because he has to celebrate the divine liturgy in ancient Syriac. Now, if you were to look at Syriac written, it looks like chicken scratch to, to our eyes. I felt sorry for this guy because he, he was born and he was a, he's a Canadian. So his native language is English and he had to go and study Syriac and be proficient enough in it to celebrate the divine liturgy. Couldn't even have his first mass, if you will, until he could master Syriac well enough to uh, to celebrate the divine liturgy, and he did. But it's still the same mass. What is the mass? The sacrifice of the cross with all infinite power, uh, made present sacramentally on the altar. Father. Yeah. May I ask: Are the words of consecration similar? They are similar, uh, but you would have to follow in a book very carefully to find out where it is because it doesn't follow the same it's much more elaborate even even the liturgy of saint john chrysostom which is the simplest of the two um i i belong to um uh, I, i'm like a third world a third order member of the dominican uh the madonna house possibly in uh, ontario founded by catherine doherty and in that community it's a Catholic community about 180 miles northeast of Toronto. They celebrate the Roman Rite Mass on one Sunday in their Roman Rite Chapel. Then they have an Eastern Chapel on an island. Uh, it's, not, it's an island, but you can walk there. It's, it's, you, know, you don't have to take a boat. The East, and then on the following Sunday, they celebrate the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And I, when I go there, uh, I would concelebrate both masses with them. I would concelebrate the Divine Liturgy and the Roman Rite Mass. And they had to give me a book because, and we would dress in their vestments, the Eastern Rite vestments, which are very different from ours, much more elaborate, much more ornate, heavy too. And I had to follow along. Um, they had it, it was done in English, thank God. It wasn't done in Syriac or Aramaic or some of these other languages or Russian like so.
give you, I remember when I was in the seminary, I had to um, write a paper on my experience of attending one of these liturgies. So I went in New Haven, Connecticut, New Haven. There was a Byzantine uh, church and uh, I went and attended it. And they give you, you know, they give you a piece of paper, uh, a booklet, so you can follow along, especially if it's in a different language, so you can kind of see what's what's going on. Okay. But when I went that Sunday, I didn't have to go to my local parish for mass to fulfill my obligation because they're Catholic. Right? So all these rites express one and the same faith and the beauty of the richness and diversity that is Catholicism. Okay. And um, entry number 1202 um, there it basically talks about the different traditions that have arisen. Um, in entry 1203, the Catechism, we're not going to have time to go through all of these. It talks about the different types of rites. So you have the Ambrosian rite. Um, even, even in the Roman rite, there are different uh, rites. The Dominicans had, I don't know if they still practice it, but the Dominicans had their own particular rite of saying Mass. So you could go to a Dominican church, like if you went to the Dominican church uh, on a Sunday or any day uh, in the 1940s or 50s, 60s even, you would see them celebrating the, the, the Catholic mass, but they have their own particular way of doing it. One beautiful feature I recall, before the sign of peace, the celebrant would kiss the chalice, and then he would say, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Peace of the ki the kiss of peace, basically kissing the chalice containing the precious blood, and then extending that kiss of peace to the, all the faithful who were at the mass. And I've even seen some Dominicans still do that. So even within our own Latin rite, there are there are certain rites that belong to religious orders. So you have the Byzantine, the Alexandrian, the Coptic, the Syriac, the Armenian, the Maronite, the Chaldean. Uh, all members of one holy mother church, right? All lawfully recognized rights, uh, as the catechism says, all with equal dignity, okay? One isn't better than another, right? But I'll tell you, if you ever get a chance to go to a divine liturgy, do yourself a favor and go. Now, if you went to the Orthodox they celebrate the divine liturgies too of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil, but I'm not sure that I don't think Catholics can, that would not fulfill our Sunday obligation, even though it would be a true mass. Because remember, the Orthodox maintain the apostolic succession. So their bishops are true bishops and their priests are true priests of the New Testament. So the, 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 uh, the, the rites they celebrate, the liturgies are valid, but we're not in communion with them, and they don't want us to receive Holy Communion in their churches. Okay. Holy Communion would be given differently, too, even in the UDA churches. You'd go up for communion, and they have like little, it's, they almost like, like little pieces of cake instead of the host, like we have. And they'll take it with a spoon. They have, the, they have these, it's a special um, vessel, and it has... Uh, 
along the bottom, you have these little pieces of cake, or which are the body of Christ now after consecration. And in the middle, you have like a, like a chalice containing the precious blood and a spoon. And they would take the, 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 the piece of host, the, the, the precious body of Christ, they would dip it into the wine, into the precious blood, I should say. And then you come up for communion, and you'd have to open your mouth. There's no, there's no communion on the hand. And the priest would drop it into your mouth with the spoon. That's how they received communion, for example. So many many Roman Catholics uh, they're not aware of this this rich landscape uh, and the variety of particular churches that exist within the one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Right? Um, they they don't even realize that the Latin Church, the Roman Church herself is a particular church, right? In fact, she's the largest of these distinct ecclesial churches. She's the largest, right? Um, she's the largest of these particular churches. And um, the Pope, besides being the local bishop of Rome and the universal pastor, is also head of the Roman Church with, with, with its distinct traditions. And the Eastern Catholic traditions have their own patriarch uh, to oversee their liturgy. Okay? But even the patriarchs look to the Pope as the center of unity of the universal church. So they're under the authority of the Pope. And there's a great variety of them. However, I think I'm going to close on this point. Um, the Church of Rome is considered the mother of all the particular churches. Holy Mother Church is the Church of Rome. And I don't mean the church that's talking about the Roman Catholic Church, universal, is the mother of all the churches. Now, in speaking, and this is an important point, about the question uh, concerning a church in a given country, this became a thorny issue in history around the time of the French Revolution when there was a call for a French national church that would be autonomous. Nationalism has always been a force that could become misguided and threaten the unity of the universal church. So there's a danger in the notion of a national church. We can only speak of the Catholic church in America or the Catholic church in France or the Catholic church in Germany or name your country. We do not speak of the American church or the French church or the German church as if it were somehow autonomous from the one Catholic Church. Okay. These particular churches grew up according to customs in a particular country, not according to the political boundaries of those countries. It wasn't the political boundaries that were establishing the dividing lines among the particular churches. So we don't speak in terms of national churches. It's improper to do so, and that's one of the questions on your uh, questions for review. Okay? 
All right. Um, I think that's enough for now. Do you know what the Conference of Bishops are? Do you know what the Conference of Bishops is, any of you? The National Conference of Bishops for the USA. Yes, USCCB. Okay, but but they're not. They don't comprise a national church. Okay, uh, what the conference is? It's a grouping of bishops. A grouping of bishops is not a church. It's a grouping of leaders of the church. Right, groupings of bishops of a given country divided into conferences of bishops is a way that the bishops can exercise their ministry in common, right? As the nature of the episcopacy, episcopacy calls them to do, okay? But even so, it would not be correct to talk of them, talk about them as a national church. Conferences of bishops are just that. Groupings of bishops, not of the faithful, um, but of the bishops, so the conference, the USCCB, the United um, Conference of Catholic Bishops in the United States, they get together in Washington to discuss particular issues that are occurring in the church, the Catholic Church in the United States. Okay. And they are creations of ecclesiastical law. Uh, okay. So they, they basically talk about, you know, policy, um, challenges to the church in this country and the same thing is true in every con Episcopal conference so we don't speak of a national American church so important okay? it's important because uh, you know our mass media pe people can turn on the TV and see the church at, at the Vatican or St. Peter's and think that that's the Catholic church and while it's true that St. Peter's is part of the Catholic Church, and an important part, we have to also remember that the local church is also part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Do the conferences have any authority? What's that? Do the conference, conferences of bishops have any particular authority? We do have authority, uh, yeah, because the bishops themselves have authority. So, the, for example, the USCCB in this country can decide whether communion should be uh, could be offered in the hand, or they could decide we're going to outlaw that. We don't want that anymore. It's going to be people have to receive in the on the on the tongue. That's just you know just one thing that comes pops into my head. Yeah, but they're not independent of the Holy See, no. any more than any particular bishop is. They can't just, for example, the Conference of Catholic Bishops can't come together and decide, well, let's start having uh, gay marriages. Let's bless gay marriages. They can't do that. That would be a violation of the moral law of the church. And it would be, constitute a break with the Holy Father. Okay. That's all I got for you tonight. And it's just about time to end. Thank you. So, Stay if you have any questions, please uh, send them to me, email them to me. I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, obviously, this is going to be the strangest Holy Week, uh, I think, in um, in uh, history, certainly in our history. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to con I'm going to be the celebrant of Holy Thursday in the parish where I help out in. 
and it's going to be me and the pastor. That's it. And not even a homily because he does not stream live. He's not live streaming it. So I said to him, you want me to be a celebrant? So I guess I'm not going to give a homily just to you. <laughs> we'll sit down after the gospel and, and we'll commiserate <coughs> together about, well, we'll share insights about the gospel. Father, do we have class next uh, Monday? There is no class next Monday because it is East. We're following the seminary calendar, no matter what. Um, so next next um, Monday is Easter Monday, which the seminarians would have had off. And in fact, they do have it off. No, they, the guys who have classes on Monday and you too, students who have classes Monday evening, uh, you do not have class. So we'll be meeting again two weeks from today. Uh, the next topic um, is who is a member of the church? And the question of outside of the church, there is no salvation. How's that for a tantalizing topic? Cool. <laughs> That'll pique your interest. And um, what about Baptist by anticipation? Never mind about that business now. Don't start with me. <laughs> Nine thirty. Everybody's tired. Yes, I hear um, you. Then the week after that is Mary as mother of the church. That'll be a shorter lecture, lecture, Alexio Brevis. And then I'll talk about the final exam and how we're going to do that, uh, you know, maybe next week. Oh, then what about the book review? Yes, well, the book review, you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have email to either email it to me. It's due on the last day. So you can email it to me, I suppose. That's the easiest way. Just email it to me. I'm directing an MA thesis for one of the fourth-year seminarians. I told him to mail his chapter to me, though, because I have to correct that and mark it up. And uh, I don't want to keep... I'm already running out of income. I've already run out of ink twice. <laughs> running out everything. So I can just correct your, your book reviews. They're not that long online rather than printing them all out. Mm -hmm. okay, so let us pray now for, um, let us pray for those who have died today because of the coronavirus in particular, especially in New York, where uh, the death toll is appalling. And we pray for them and we also want to pray for uh, Dr. Leno's, um, Reno. Dr. Reno's um, nephew, Anthony Spadaccini, um, and for his safety, Dr. Anthony's safety and the safety of his of all healthcare workers, let us just offer to the Lord uh, this the, the the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord. May they rest in peace. And the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, stay well. God bless you all. Thank you, Father. Bless, bless, bless your Father. Holy Week.
YouTube Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Easter. Happy Easter. Easter. Yeah. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Thank Another you. Another strange Easter. Happy Easter. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.